Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. All right, so last week was very heavy. It's not going to stop this week. Last week was Matthew chapter 24. We talked about the end times. We talked about a great tribulation coming to the earth. We talked about his glorious return. We talked about the time frames, the possible time frames of that um, happening. I shared with you my understanding of those time frames, and many of you came back. <laughs> Praise God. I had a lot of shaking of hands at the end of the service. Uh, uh, my favorite uh, was somebody came up to me and shook my hand and said, um, I hope you're wrong. <clears throat> I hope I am too. So this week, uh, after Jesus in Matthew 24 talks about the second coming, talks about the end of the world and what can we expect as we get closer to that date, uh, this week he talks about how his return will reveal within his church, his family, two different kinds of people. And it's interesting because what he's talking about here, he's casting vision for the next 2,000 years. We're living in the time period of what he's talking about. He's referencing the end of days, but he's also referencing the period of the church, the church age. So the things he's talking about are relevant to us today. And so in these three parables in Matthew chapter 25, he's gonna reveal two different kinds of people. In both, all three parables, they tell different stories, but they're reinforcing the same thing. They're essentially saying the fact that within the church, there are wise people and there are foolish people. Within the family, the church, there are faithful people and there are people who are filled with fear and they're sitting right next to each other. In the church, there are obedient people and there are disobedient people and they sit right next to each other every Sunday. So the purpose of this chapter, hopefully, is to wake us up to examine our own lives. Because if there's one thing that you can say about humanity, it is that we are our own best lawyers. We can argue our case and our perspective. We, can, we don't have grace for other people, but when it comes to us, man, we can argue a good case for why the things that are not good for us, we need to continue to participate in. And with that in mind, it is easy for you to argue why you are one person when you are actually somebody else. So the purpose of truth when we stare at it today is to reveal almost like a mirror our true self. Because you can walk around thinking that you look one way, but you can't escape the reflection that you see in the mirror. And today the word of God is our mirror. It shows us our true self. So for some of us, this is gonna be a message of life because praise God, I am not faking my relationship with Jesus. Deep down it is profound, it is true, it is, he has changed my life. For some of us, looking at this, your takeaway will be, um, yeah, I, I go to church. I go to church with my wife. And that, that's about it. We pray over dinner. We go at Easter. We go at Christmas. Or no, 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 I, I'm, I'm invested. I'm, I'm a part of a local church. We, I give, I go. 
And the list of what you would argue is reasons for why you love Jesus is just a laundry list of things that you do on a regular basis, but there is not one of them connected to a deep, profound, true heart change because you surrendered and you repented from a former life and turned to a new life. And every one of the things that we do is a reflection of that thing that he did to us. It is not something to convince him that we are worthy, we're, we're, God, you can let me in because of these things that I did. No, I'm part of the family because of what you did, and now that I am part of the family, I do these things. These things are not um, my evidence for why I should be a part of the family, they are proof that I am part of the family. And that is such a thin, razor uh, line of difference that, that we could, you could get lost in if you don't understand the difference between that. Because you can argue your own case that, man, I'm good. Look at what I do. And be completely lost that all the things you do are, should be an overflow of something else that is true. And if that one thing that is not true, you are facing a perilous end. And so today, for those who love Jesus, it's gonna be a good day. But for those who are here because somebody told you you needed to be here, or because you've been living your life thinking that this is what God wants out of you, but not repenting, your, your Christian life exists for one and a half hours every Sunday, but Sunday afternoon through Saturday night, that's your time. You spend your money on what you wanna spend your money on. You set your own calendar. You live where you wanna live, you buy what you wanna buy, you wear what you wanna wear, you talk the way you wanna talk, you post what you wanna post, you think the way you think, you vote the way you vote. It does not matter what he thinks because this is your kingdom. You are the sovereign ruler over your own heart. But once a week when you show up, you gotta put on that mask and you gotta look like a Christian. This is rough, but this is what we're studying today in Matthew 25. So as we study this chapter, we wanna be woken up to the fact that Christian life can look genuine from a distance, but up close, it can have no real substance. That the things that we're doing are an overflow of what Jesus has done rather than the things that prove we're worthy to be saved by him. So, Matthew 25. We'll start in verse one and we'll go through 13. This is the first parable. So this is following his teaching on the end times and he starts with the word then. Now that word then is a Greek word that essentially means at this time. So what he's tying together is the understanding that what he's about to talk about is not currently happening because the church age hasn't been established, the day of Pentecost hasn't come yet. But, it, but as we move progressively closer to the return of his, of his or the, the coming of his return, this is what's gonna happen within the church. So at that time, towards the end of the world, and I believe we're living close to that period, this is what the kingdom of heaven will be like. It will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went, went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. Now in Greek, that word foolish, it, a better translation is stupid. <laughs> but I like to think that they didn't put it in there because you, you don't call people stupid in church. But five of them were stupid. 
And five of them were prudent, which means they were showing care and they had thought for the future. They were wise. So when the stupid took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil for their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept, but at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, since there's not, there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came. Lord, open up to us. But he said, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Well, that's interesting because look at what they called him. Lord, Lord, I don't know you. Verse 13, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So in this parable, Jesus is contrasting 10 virgins. Now in this culture, the way weddings worked is that the, the, these virgins, they were, they were not just guests at the wedding. They were actually part of the wedding. You think of them kind of like bridesmaids. The wedding culture is that the, the, the bride would go to her home, her father's home, the, the bridesmaids, the virgins would go with her and then they would wait because the bridegroom was at his house with his family and there was kind of a party and people would come and the process of marriage was um, ongoing and so bridegroom would go from one house to another house and there was kind of this party and there was this building of anticipation and excitement and the bride's like, it's gonna happen tonight but I don't know when it's gonna happen and it's very exciting and, he's, and they're looking through the window and it's all designed to build this anticipation because a great thing is coming, right? So then the bridegroom eventually shows up. He comes to the bride's house, they have the wedding. And then after uh, uh, the wedding, then there's uh, a continuous party and it lasts for like a week. So that part of it is not necessarily important except for the fact that when Jesus is teaching, he's talking about a culture that they understand but we don't understand. So that's why there's these virgins, that's why they have these lamps, that's why they're sitting out there waiting because it was a part of their culture. So in this, you've got 10 virgins, and five of them Jesus calls stupid, and five of them are prudent, they're wise. So what we need to examine is not necessarily the culture of the wedding or what the oil was. What we need to understand here is what the difference between the virgins were. Because from a distance, they all look the same. They all look like young ladies who are ready for a wedding, they've all got lamps, and they all have oil. So what is the difference? The difference is that only five of them packed extra oil. That's the difference. From the outside, they all look the same. And they're all in the same party. They're hanging out together, they all fell asleep. But only some of them packed extra oil. And so in this parable, the component that we need to zoom in on is this idea that Oil is a representation of preparation. 
a lot of commentators, and I read them this week, they're like, oil is the Holy Spirit, or oil is like good works, right? The problem with that is that you can't go buy the Holy Spirit from the store. And you can't go buy more good works. So in this parable, the oil represents preparation. Did you prepare that through all seasons of life you could endure, which is a huge component of what Jesus talked about in Matthew 24. Those who endure to the end will be saved. So endurance is a huge component of our life. Now is it the thing or is it evidence of something else? It's the second. Endurance in and of itself is not what saves you. I can go through all seasons of life and I can be faithful. Because if that's true, then your salvation is based off of your faithfulness and not his faithfulness. And that's not how it works. So endurance is, or oil is not the thing um, that proves that you are uh, now worthy to be saved. It is evidence that you are already saved. Are you following with me? So the idea that I have packed enough oil to endure any season that may come my way is exactly like the parable of the seeds and the sower. Jesus throws some seeds and they, they, they take root and they start to produce a crop. But guess what? The cares of this world choke them out and they don't ever become anything. So you can have these virgins standing next to each other and they look like the same on the outside, but how do you know who the real ones are, the ones who are actually prepared, the ones who can endure? Well, you don't know until it's time to endure, and that's why the bridegroom was delayed. Because the only way to expose what is truly in here is for you to endure through seasons that you don't like. All of them were convinced, I know when he's coming back, but he didn't come back when they thought he was gonna come back. He came back at the very end, the midnight hour, the very, 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 very end. And so the question is, when it comes to these people, the, different, the, the, the distinguishing mark between who are wise and who are foolish, who are the wise ones? The wise ones are the ones who have genuine faith that can endure all seasons of life so that when the Lord asks, I want you to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil. Because you know that he's walking with you and he's gonna prepare a table for you in the midst of your enemies. There's no reason to fear because he's with you. But there are those of us who the moment he would say, I want you to do something that you would not choose for yourself, our immediate response would be like, how dare you? And we start shaking our fists and we start getting angry and we start blaming him. And the things that he intended for our good to transform us and make us more like him are the things that drive us away from him. So why would he do that? He would do that so that it's abundantly clear to us that we were never among you in the first place. How does, he, how does he determine whether your faith is genuine? How do we know whether our faith is genuine? It's proven in our endurance. So when we look at this parable, what's the point? What is our takeaway? What are we supposed to learn? Well, he says it in verse 13, watch therefore. 
Do you hear all this? So what's the takeaway? Watch. Be alert, be awake, be prepared. The timing of Jesus' return will be delayed from our perspective, but it's delayed so that people have time to join the family. Praise God he didn't return this morning because there are some of you who have loved ones in your family who don't trust Jesus and you want a little more time for them to change their mind and put their faith in him. So thank God that he's giving us that time. Thank God for your delay because there are those who I love and I don't want to spend eternity without and I need more time showing them the love and allowing you to work through me because I want them to trust you the way that I know I trust you. So his delay is a gift. It allows those who have not yet come to saving faith, come to saving faith. But it's also a double-edged sword because that same time that gives us time also exposes what's truly inside of our heart. And the truth is that churches contain people that look like Christians, but they're not. They show up dressed exactly like the, the parable of the virgins. They look, they look, all of them look the same. They all have their lamp, they all have oil, they're mixed in with believers, they're sitting right next to them, but the truth is that the reality of the word of God, the truth of who Jesus is, the call to repentance, it is not saturated their soul, the word isn't changing them, it's just something that they listen to somebody else talk about once a week, but they never open it for themselves. They don't care what he has to say for their life because they They've already made their decisions about what they think about things. I don't need to be told how to think differently because God has different thoughts than me. I'm convinced he thinks like I think. So there is nothing that needs to be, the only change that needs to happen is everybody else. If everybody else thought like me, this world would be a better place. Within the context of church, there's no examining of the heart for some people. There's no following of the spirit. There's no walking in repentance. There's only outward signs, but no lasting inner oil. So, his delay is a gift to us because the church, we need to be warned that the cost for being unprepared is devastating. That the cost for not being able to endure the ability to, to live so close to the kingdom, to be surrounded by people who are transformed, but never really become a citizen. That is devastating. That you cannot continue to play those games because you're gonna find out at the end that there is coming a judgment your way for living that way, for treating this lightly, for handling the things of God like they are a toy to be manipulated. And this is everywhere within the life of his church. This is from the pulpit. This is from leaders. This is from so-called pastors. This is from social media influence pastors who are not actually pastors. They're in it for the likes. This is right down to the people who hold leadership positions within the church. This is people who get on the stage and lead worship, not because their heart is surrendered and just ravished by the love of Jesus, but because they're a sellout from the world and couldn't get a gig in a band, and so this is how they make a living now. They play their instrument. You, you know, do you know anybody like this? This is right down into the life of the church. This is the husband who's got to be dragged to church by his wife. He doesn't want to be there. He'd rather be out doing 10 other things. And you can see him in his face while he's worshiping. When is this going to be over? Is this guy done anytime soon? 
This is, this is on the teenagers who watch their parents act one way in church, but a different way in the car ride home from the church. This is everywhere. This is a cancer inside our family, and we don't talk about it because we think as long as you play the game while we're all watching, then we're all okay. Guys, we are not okay. We're promised eternal punishment if we don't get this right. So, when he returns, it's too late. Because there are some things you can't buy. And there are some things you can't borrow from somebody else. On judgment day, you can't stand before the Lord and say, my wife loved you. My dad loved you. My grandmother loved you. My grandmother prayed for me. That doesn't get you in, buddy. It's too late for that. So don't be stupid. Let's go to the next one, verse 14. Jesus is on a roll, all right? I'll give you another one. For it will be like a man on going on a journey. He called his servants and entrusted to them his property. The one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one to each according to his ability, and then he went away. That's really important. We'll come back to it in a minute. But he gave talents to people, different talents, and he gave them according to their ability. And then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. But also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a very long time, the master of the servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing the five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, well done, you good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, and now I'm gonna set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what we want. That's the reaction we want from our Heavenly Father. But do you need five talents to get that response? No, because in verse 22, and he also, the guy with the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you gave me two talents, and look, I made two talents more. And his master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little, and I will now set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Do you see that? Both guys, different amounts of talents, got the same response. So it's not about how many talents you have, it's about what you do with them. Verse 24, he says, he he who also had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, um, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. And the master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I scatter no seed. Well, then you ought to have at least invested my money with the bankers and at my coming, I should have received what was mine plus interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has 
will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now to start dissecting this, I wanna begin with this concept of talents. Because it's not exactly what you think it is. A talent in this context was a measurement of money. It was a weight. It probably weighed around 70-ish pounds, and it was probably in the neighborhood of around $200,000. And so what this guy is doing, this master, is he's giving large weights of money to his servants and telling them, I want you to go and be a good steward of my resources. Now the way he divvied them up, the master gave each person money, but the amounts were different. We covered that a minute ago. But it's important in verse 15 when it says, they were each given according to his own ability. That verse tells us that the amounts were not based off of anything else than their abilities. So they were given a measure of something because they had a certain amount of abilities. Because, and I bring that up because the way we read this, it's very easy for us to assume that when we're reading this, that talents equal the English word talents, your giftings. But that's not what it's saying here. And it's not saying that because they were given according to their abilities. The amounts were different because each person had a different power or a different capability or a different gifting. So the reason why they were different is because not every person can handle five talents and not everybody needed five talents. But conversely, everybody who was given one talent or two talent was only given that much because they didn't need more than that. So what am I trying to say? Beyond the fact that the five talent guy and the two talent guy were both rewarded the same, and that shows us that it doesn't matter how many talents you have, that the goal is to be faithful in what you were given, and the fact that the one talent guy was punished because he was afraid of the master's response, and it's funny because we don't actually know that his um, idea of the master being a hard master was actually true. We're not told that. The guy says, look, this is my perception of you. But we all know that perception is a reality, so at this point it doesn't really matter. What this guy believes about his master is what his truth is. So he is convinced that this guy is a hard guy, and so I'm afraid that what I have is not enough compared to these other guys, so I'm just gonna go bury it and I'm not gonna use it. So beyond those clear understandings, that it doesn't matter how much these guys were given, the ones who reproduced were rewarded and the ones who hid it and did nothing were punished. How do we take this and apply it to our lives? Well, I would argue that based off of verse 15, that the ability is what determines how many talents we give, or excuse me, how many talents we get, we should interpret talents not as a gifting or ability, but more as a, a responsibility or a sphere of influence that God has given you according to your abilities. You follow? Now this is important to understand. 
Because in this culture, a lot of your worth is wrapped up in comparing yourself with other people. The problem with that is that you have not been given the same sphere of responsibility as other people. Because you've been given specific spheres of responsibility according to your abilities, which he also gave you. And so at the end of the age, you're not gonna be held accountable for what somebody else did with what God gave them. You'll be held accountable for what God gave you. Let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. This idea of having spheres of responsibility according to your ability. I have the ability of leadership, teaching, fathering abilities. These are things that over the time, God has crafted and worked in me. They've been affirmed by other people. Look, God's called you to leadership. God's called you to shepherding, to pastoring. So these are abilities that I know that I have. But I have to constantly assess, okay, what are the spheres of, of responsibility that I am supposed to use those abilities in? Am I responsible, if if I have the ability of a pastor, am I responsible for that church down the road because I'm a pastor? Or am I only responsible before God for this sphere of responsibility of church that he has given me care for? And if that is true, if this is my sphere and my other sphere is my family, then I am a two-talent guy. I've got two realms of responsibility that I am responsible for, and at the end of the age, God will not say, you you didn't produce like this other church down the road. I wish you would have just, man, really grinded it out some more and produced some more fruit and could have, man, you could have done some more things for my kingdom had you really just worked harder, you lazy bum. No, that's not what he's gonna say. He's, at the end of the age, he's gonna say, in the sphere of responsibility I gave you, in your home and in this church, what did you do with the abilities I gave you? Now, why is that important? Because some of you in this place have five spheres or 10 spheres, and some of you only have one sphere. But those of you who have one sphere of responsibility are being envious of those who have five spheres of responsibility. And those of you who have five are envious of those who have 10 because in our culture, bigger is always better. So the mom who has the one sphere of responsibility, raising her children, loving her husband, is looking over her shoulder because she's being told by the world that this isn't enough when this is all God gave her. And the pastor, who's got this little church of 100 people, is looking over his shoulder thinking, man, my board is telling me I need to be doing some more things because we gotta grow this thing because I gotta be like these guys over here. God didn't give you what he gave those guys over here. He gave you this. So are you being faithful with this or are you constantly looking over your shoulder at what you see on social media about what other people are telling you you need to do and then you start spending money going to conferences you don't have any business being at because you're trying to grow something to be like somebody you're not. The reason why God gave some of you one sphere is because five would be too many. You don't need that many. Because what you're raising right now is a person who will have 10 spheres. And one of the things that will keep them grounded is the fact that they had a mother and a father that loved them and it will inform a lot of decisions they have moving forward in life. But if you don't get your one sphere right, then you're affecting those who have other spheres beyond that. 
Have you ever thought that one of the greatest things you'll ever accomplish in your life is raising that child? Are you okay with that? Are you okay that the greatest thing you'll ever accomplish is somebody that you will raise? Or is that not enough? Because that's an issue. It's an issue for you to say to the God of the universe, what you decided is not enough. It's an issue for you to stand before the God of the universe and say the way you made me as a man is not enough. I wanna be a woman. What you designed for marriage and family, not enough. I want to redefine it. The sphere of influence you gave me, not enough. I want more, and I know I can do more. Well, you might be able to accomplish more, but you won't be held accountable for that. You'll be held accountable for the one thing that you didn't do, even though there were nine things that you excelled at. You can excel at 50 things and fail at the one that matters most. And that's the point of this parable. This is important. Spheres do not equal value or important. They simply reflect ability. And ability does not equal value or importance. It simply reflects his wisdom. More does not equal better. And at the end of the age, you will not be judged on what other people were given to care for. You will only be judged by what he gave you to care for. Now let's go to verse 31. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, at that point, he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be scattered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and put the goats on his left. And then the king will say to the ones on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or, or naked and clothe you? When, when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these of my brothers, you did it to me. And then he's gonna turn to those on the left and he's gonna say, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food, and thirsty and you gave me no drink. And I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they're gonna say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't minister to you? And he will say to them, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, in order to understand this, it's important to understand the way that first shepherding, or excuse me, first century shepherding worked. Here in America, we've got lots and lots of land. And so you don't have the cows grazing with the sheep. They get their own field. But in the first century uh, Israel, the land is scarce, and so the goats and the sheep, they graze together during the day. But at night, Sheep have lots of wool and they can stay warm in the cold temperatures, but goats don't have that. 
So from a distance, when they're all grazing together, it's hard to tell the difference between the sheep and the goats. But every night when the shepherd pulls them in, he knows what's a sheep and what's a goat, because if he doesn't, one's gonna freeze and one's not. So he separates them so that they sleep separately. And what Jesus is saying is, to this culture that understands that principle, at the end of the age, like the end of a day for a shepherd, the Lord is gonna call in his church and he's gonna separate those who historically have always grazed with the real true believers and just played a game and he's gonna know the difference and he's gonna separate them and he's gonna put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left and he's gonna say harsh words to the goats and he's gonna say kind words to the sheep. And social justice warriors love this verse because they read it as, see, you want approval from the Father? All you gotta do is go do prison ministry. All you gotta do is you feed the homeless. That's what it's all about. But in light of the entire New Testament, no, that's not what it's about. Those acts are empty in and of themselves. They only have true meaning if they are an overflow or a reaction of the fact that you have been visited when you were in sin prison by the God Almighty. His name is Jesus, and he came and he freed you. And now that you've been freed from prison, you feel desire to go share that same freedom with other people in prison. But just doing prison ministry of it, uh, itself, it means nothing, it's empty. And so the fact that you've been fed on the bread of life makes you wanna go feed other people because you want them to know about Jesus. But just feeding the homeless does nothing. You don't need Jesus to feed homeless people. So we can't look at this and say, well, all we gotta do is just the things we've gotta do. No, we look at this and we say that the teaching Jesus is bringing across is that it is possible for us to lie to ourselves in the church to make this thing, this whole kingdom of God thing about stuff that it is not about. That we can lie to ourselves and say, if I did these things, then when I stand before him, he'll take those things into account and I will be considered part of his family. This is the point James is making in verse, chapter two, verses 14 through 17. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, hey, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for their body, what good is that? So also, in like manner, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So we are saved by faith, but if that faith is not producing genuine transformation that is measurable on the outside by you and other people, the Bible would say that your faith is a lie. This is the looking in the mirror. It's not saying, should I sign up for prison ministry? Should I do more? No. Looking at the word is this. Have I been profoundly transformed by the king of glory? And if the answer is yes, what is my honest response to that? What should I be doing because of what has been done to me? Not what I should be doing because it's what I should be doing. It's what I should be doing because deep down in my soul, I'm a different man and a different woman than I was before. So everything that I do is an overflow of something that's been done to me. If that core understanding, 
is missing from your understanding of what Jesus is doing in you, then what awaits you is eternal punishment that was set aside for the devil and his angels. Now in all three of these parables, we see the same ending. Those folks who are living a lie, wearing a mask, trying to blend in, are all headed to the same direction, and that is hell. Those who participate in religious activities and never truly have a surrender. Those who can't endure, those who aren't faithful, those who do not take what was given to them and allow it to transform them and start living differently, they're heading to hell. And hell is a very real place. There is a lie being sold from many pulpits in America that hell is not a real place. It is a state of mind that you live in if you reject God. And God, man, you can get to him lots of ways. And there's plenty of interviews of people that we would call religious leaders in the church when they're asked pointed questions. Are there different ways to God outside of Jesus? And their response is, who am I to say? Well, what do you mean, who are you to say? You're an ambassador of Jesus. You are the one to say. If not you, then who? There's only one way to get to God, and that is through Jesus. There's not 19 different ways. There's not, you can't find him in different religions or different paths. Jesus is clear, he's the only way. And if you get that wrong, that one thing wrong, it doesn't matter what you've accomplished in your life. Everything else will be tossed onto the pile and burned like you when you get tossed into eternal fire and hell, because it is a real place and a lot of people are heading there and they think they're not because they're a good person. And I'm here to tell you that you being a good person does not weigh into any equation on an eternal scale. You cannot be good enough. So, in preparing for this message, I want to bring forth one final word because in, in preparing there was something that became very apparent to me because whenever we talk about this kind of stuff, I get lots of emails you guys are good people. It's not those kind of emails. Other pastors get those kind of emails. And uh, in, in, in almost eight years, no one has ever sent me a, uh, an email about how I should, uh, you should preach differently on this, or you should have changed this. Um, and I appreciate that. <laughs> um, but I do get a lot of self-reflecting emails. And traditionally, when we talk about this subject, a lot of times I get emails, well, I, I don't really know where I fall on that. That scared me. Well, one, good. All right, good. It should bring a weight of heaviness that you don't get when you're trying to decide what you're gonna have for dinner. There are some decisions in life that don't matter much, and there are some decisions that everything weighs on. This is one of those. But these are from people who, man, on the outward appearance, man, they, man, they love Jesus. And I can see the evidence of it from the outside, but, but, but they're not secure in their salvation. So when they read this, like, no, nah, maybe this is me. <laughs> I don't wanna, I don't want to go to hell. Well, we, taught, we, we sang today about testimony. Can you point your finger to what the Lord has done and can you see the transforming work? Are you the same person you were five years ago? Are you the same person you were a year ago? If the answer is no, then he is at work and this message is a message of life unto you because he has done transforming work and you don't need to leave here worrying about where you stand with the Lord. 
I had a conversation with Chad last night. We're sitting on the couch and we we're talking about this message and we were talking about the idea of where you stand with your parents when you move out. If you have to anticipate, like I'm not really sure where I stand with my dad. I need to call him before I go, go over just to kind of see like, is it okay if we come over right now? Or like, how are you feeling? I'm not really sure where we stand. Versus somebody who's just like, hey man, I, this is like, we're family. Like this is, this is my, I, you don't have to call before you come over. You wanna see me, come over. Just come, I wanna see you too. Come on over. There's an understanding within family structure, right? That there is, there, that you don't have to check with me on where we are, we're good. You, like, you're my child, I'm your dad, I love you. That's the end of the story. If there's something we gotta talk about, I'll talk about it, but you don't need to walk around in eggshells worrying about, I don't know how I stand with my father. I wonder if today I'm his son. No, no, you're always, you're always part of his family. But this message is designed in a way to really bring the reality home because that truth is not in the hearts of, other people, of, of everyone. There are some of you sitting in here today where legitimately, you look back on your life, I've been going to church for 20 years and I don't look different. Nothing's changing in me. I went on a mission trips once, but I, I only went because I felt guilty. I like I had to, I got cornered. I go to a small group, but I do it because my wife tells me I should. This is a warning. Because if you keep living like that, you're not gonna hear, well done my good and faithful servant. At the end of the age, if you faked it, if you did just enough to look on the outside like you were part of the family but you never became a citizen, there is not another punishment you can imagine that is gonna be worse than eternal punishment that was only reserved for the devil and his demons. But because of our rebellion, we cast our lot with him. So if this message, upon examining it like a mirror, the reflection you see is, praise Jesus. I'm gonna testify because of what he's done. And I can see it. Praise God. You should have a happy ride home. But let's be honest for a minute. If looking at this word like a mirror shows a reflection of a person that does not look like someone who is surrendered, but someone who is trying to fake it, then you need to take this message seriously. And there should be a somber car ride home and there should be some time this week of self-reflecting on why, if what he says is true, is not working itself out in me. Because I'm told that if my faith isn't producing fruit, then maybe my faith is in the wrong thing. That's a real thing. It exists in churches and you might be guilty of it. I don't wanna see any of you go to hell, and so it's time for all of us to stop walking the line and blending in. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.